Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 51, Practicalities. As we very slowly transition towards becoming a spacefaring species, there are some basic issues we have to start grappling with. Amongst those basic issues that we'll have to start grappling with is that most places we are likely to travel to will not have a primarily nitrogen and 20% oxygen atmosphere, and they probably won't have 1G of gravity. A significant barrier we face in shifting people's focus towards these issues is that most science fiction shows show us flying around the galaxy and constantly landing on planets with primarily nitrogen and 20% oxygen atmospheres and 1G of gravity. But sometimes science fiction does have a go at portraying real space environments. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Will the first moon base be anything like Artemis? Andy Weir, author of The Martian, has since written Artemis a tale about a lunar colony which has prompted people to start thinking about how the first moon base might operate. The smelting of a northite to extract aluminium or aluminum is key to the colony's success and to the novel's plot. A northite smelting gives you metal for building and oxygen to let you live in the buildings that you build. Although surprisingly in Artemis, People live in 100% oxygen at 20% of atmospheric pressure. In reality, long-term exposure to 100% oxygen is not really good for you, and it's unlikely anyone could light a cigar in that environment, which happens in the book, without it exploding into flame. It's also not clear where all the water comes from. It is made clear that water is a scarce commodity, that's carefully recycled, but that's about all that we're told. The aluminium smelting requires a huge amount of energy, which is drawn from nuclear generators. Apparently you can't manage it with just solar panels. So it's perhaps optimistic to have set the story of Artemis about 60 years in the future, which requires us to not only get back to the moon, but also to build two working nuclear reactors on it. These are apparently fission reactors, and hence our existing technology, but actually building them will be challenging. Nonetheless, Mr Weir is spot on that if you want a lunar colony, you will need an energy source, and going nuclear may be the best option. There's nowhere on the moon's surface where you'll get uninterrupted sunlight even near the poles, unless perhaps you build a big tower on a hill. With a nuclear reactor, you can set up your colony anywhere you want. Anyhow, Andy Weir was spot on that you need an energy plan and you need an oxygen plan. Cheap astronomy will also suggest that you probably want to dilute the oxygen to about 21% with an inert gas like nitrogen and pump up the air pressure to about one atmosphere. The nitrogen should be easy to manage. It's light and compressible, and, being chemically inert, 
None of it is really going to be consumed, so you just need to ship a certain volume to the moon and then keep it there. Water is more problematic. It is recyclable, but humans are like water sponges. And the more humans you have, the more water reserves you need to keep their inputs and their outputs balanced. And that's yet another argument for a polar base, since the poles may be where you'll find the most water on the moon, lying within permanently shadowed craters. As to what might drive us to build the first moon base, Andy Weir really nailed it. It'll be tourism. In Artemis, the aluminium smelting isn't done for the purpose of sending aluminium exports back to Earth. Earth already has vast reserves, as it is. The smelting on the moon is just to generate building material for the base and to get the oxygen. Indeed, once the base is built, it's pretty much just about the oxygen. But putting all the technology to one side, Artemis is a service-based economy where people, that is, staff, are there to support the various service industries that tourism depends on. The guided tours, the restaurants, the hotels and the gift shops. Even if there was something worth mining for export from the moon, you still wouldn't need a colony. You'd just do it with robots and telepresence, which is pretty much how it's done in the Artemis story. But if you want your skinny half-cap and a lox bagel with extra cream cheese, you're going to need a human service provider. And if you want human service providers, you're going to need a colony. If we do want a lunar colony within 60 years, it's really now when we should be making the decisions about the energy plan, the oxygen plan, and where the water's going to come from. The Artemis approach is bold and requires huge upfront investment. So, given how humans tend to work, it's more likely we'll get there in little incremental steps. First, we need to do some robotic landings at the poles to confirm if there really is water in abundance there. If there is, you're good to go with solar panels, which can power the electrolysis of water into molecular hydrogen and oxygen. But if there's not much water there, maybe we need to start planning for how we're going to divert some icy comets to crash on the far side. And that is what we really need. A plan. Hello, Steve. Well, hi, Bridget. You realise this is a Dear Cheap Astronomy episode? Yes, but in the last episode, you said you weren't going to thank yourself anymore. Well, that's right. It was becoming strangely self-congratulatory. Well, I think you still need some kind of audio prompt, so that people know this is the intermission bit. What, like you telling people this is the intermission bit? Yes, this is the intermission bit. Hmm, I don't know if it's going to work long term. It might get a bit tiresome. This is the intermission bit. Great, well, we better get on with the next instalment. Yes, this was the intermission bit. Thanks, Bridget. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Why do we talk about microgravity in low Earth orbit? The force of gravity on Earth's surface at sea level is 1g. Or since gravity is really an acceleratory force, 
it's 9.8 metres per second per second. So if you jump off a chair, you'll accelerate at about 9.8 metres per second per second, as much as you will off a tall building. Unfortunately, jumping off a tall building will see you keep on accelerating, so by the time you do hit the ground, the speed you're at will probably kill you. But the more altitude you gain, that is, the further you are from the Earth's centre of mass, the weaker the force of gravity becomes. So at the altitude of the International Space Station, about 400 kilometres above sea level, the force of gravity is about 90% g, or about 8.8 metres per second per second. And at this altitude, it's possible to fall around the planet. And since you maintain the same altitude all the way round, your speed doesn't increase. Now you might reasonably pause here and think this is a bit odd. When you're in orbit, you are definitely falling and you are definitely in a gravity field. But for some reason, you don't accelerate. You might speed up and down a bit in an elliptical orbit, but your net speed should remain constant. From a Newtonian viewpoint, you could explain this in terms of orbital mechanics. As you orbit, any increase in speed will raise the altitude of your orbit, which then shifts you into a weaker gravity field, which then reduces the acceleratory force that's acting upon you. So the net balance of forces will work to keep you at a constant velocity and a constant altitude. The Einsteinian viewpoint of the situation is a bit different. If you are in a roughly circular orbit around a massive spherical body, then you are always moving through a region of equivalent space-time curvature. So neither you nor someone on the surface should see your speed accelerate or decelerate. So, if you are in orbit and you maintain a constant altitude you will maintain a constant net velocity, even though you are in a gravity field, which has a force of around 90% of what it would be on the Earth's surface. But then you might reasonably pause to wonder why in orbit you experience weightlessness. After all, if you are flying in a commercial jet at a constant velocity and altitude, you don't find yourself floating around the cabin. The answer to that is that the plane is resisting your natural tendency to fall, which means you can stand up on the cabin's floor because that floor is pushing back, preventing you from following your natural tendency to fall towards the centre of the earth. So, on a plane, the plane is resisting your natural tendency to fall, but in an orbiting spacecraft, neither you nor the spacecraft are resisting that natural tendency to fall. Both you and it are falling, but you are both falling so fast that you keep missing the ground and just keep falling around and around our spherical Earth. So, in orbit, you're falling, but since you're falling without actually changing your altitude, that is, your distance from the Earth's centre of mass, you fall at a net constant velocity and... Unlike how it is in a plane, both you and the spacecraft are falling, so there's nothing that's going to hold you onto the floor. You just float, 
And as much as you might try to stand on a set of scales to measure your weight, you just keep on floating. And so you must deduce you are weightless. Although very tiny amounts of acceleration and deceleration that may occur through a slightly elliptical orbit will give you a sense that there is just a tiny bit of what you call microgravity within your environment. At the end of the day, this really is about relativity. While you're in orbit, someone on the Earth's surface might well think you're under the influence of 90% of the Earth's surface gravity, and they'd be right. But for you, well, you are where you are, floating weightless in microgravity. There is no absolute correct explanation for what's happening. Nonetheless, everyone is correctly perceiving what's happening relative to their frame of reference. So, that was the end of part two. Steve, are you sure you don't want me to say, this is the end bit? Yep, I'm sure. I'll probably just start this end bit by saying, so there you go. That's just what you always say. I know. That's why I'm saying it. Anyway, if you've got a space science question, say about all the space science issues that were in this episode, and none of the things about how to manage the intermission bit, or the end bit, or the end bit, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and let us get back to talking about astronomy rather than segues. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.